Welcome to Above the Mess, the podcast where we bounce between our interests, dive down rabbit holes, navigate our brains, and come up in Wonderland. I'm Izzy Miller, and with me is Maddie Van Houten. Hey, Izzy, how are you? Have you been getting enough sleep? Oh, goodness. I'm doing all right. I have not been getting enough sleep, but there's a surprise. Um, we have thankfully gotten some really wonderful feedback um, to my plea, my request for help getting to bed on time. <laughs> Multiple people suggested that smart lights automatically turning off at the end of the day would be a good idea. And I agree. I don't currently have any smart home automation for my lights, which is something I don't know if I want to get into or not, especially in apartments where like making the light switch work with automated lights becomes a whole other can of worms. Oh, well. Yeah. Because you can't really, like, you can't do this, like, the smart switches. You have to, like, get, what are they called? Like, switch bots or whatever to, like, if you want to continue to use the, like, ones on the wall, you have to, like, do, I don't Yeah, but the switch bot brand, I've looked into this, doesn't work with, like, the pokey Audi style light switches. It only works with, like, the flat, like, against the wall style. Yeah, right? Isn't that weird? I think there's another brand that does work with them what I consider the more normal kind, but, yeah. um, oh, well, I have previously <laughs> done a similar thing with the thermostat. So have the apartment, like, get noticeably colder when it's time to be getting to bed, which you would expect would work, but it turns out I just don't notice, and then eventually I'm like, I'm really cold. But, like, <laughs> okay. way later. So <laughs> I'm just, like, wondering, like, did you do that for, like, the biological reason that, like, don't we get sleepier when it's cold? I feel like that's a thing. Yeah, it was a recommendation by the doctor who I'm working with for sleep stuff because it, it turns okay. out insomnia is a whole thing on its own. Um, right. And she thought that might be a helpful like behavioral conditioning thing. If you notice it's cold, you go to sleep, which hmm. I've sort of given up on because it. if it was making an impact, it wasn't a significant one. Yeah, I feel like that's the kind of thing that you either have to be like really sensitive to temperature changes or I hate to say this, but I feel like you have to be not ADHD because we don't notice body signals sometimes. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, like we don't even notice when we're hungry or thirsty. That's exactly the example I was going to go for. Yeah. It's, yeah. So no, I, I'm too focused for that to, for that to kick in, but yeah. oh well, but thanks to both Gray and Watsy for that recommendation. And certainly something that should opportunity come, I would like to explore. Um, yeah. Skylar, on the other hand, our, our wonderful dragon friend, suggested that they have a recurring daily project in OmniFocus that they use for a shutdown and startup routine, which is something I've done before, having like recurring daily tasks in things, um, which ha- hasn't really ever worked super well for me, just because the times when I need those aren't times when I'm checking my phone for things to be doing or that. It's like, it's those times where I've reached the conclusion of the doing stuff part of the day or before the doing stuff part of the day. Certainly something for other people, unfortunately, probably not for me. But Skylar also recommends melatonin supplements. And I'm happy to say that since this comment, I have started trying melatonin supplements again. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I have to ask you, does it give you kind of like a melatonin hangover? Because I have noticed this with myself. Like if I take melatonin, I do not wake up well. I've heard that from other people. I haven't noticed it for myself, but that said, 
I have the worst sleep inertia even without it. So it's possible I do and I just don't notice because it is hard <laughs> for me to get up regularly. That's a good point. For me, I like I was taking melatonin when we first got Belle and she was waking up in the middle of the night and being restless and you know, she'd wake me up. And I would wake up in the morning and I'd be like, oh my God, I feel like I drank a lot of beer or something and just can't stay awake. It would take like extra caffeine to wake back up. And I wonder if it's like this, I wonder if it's like part of the thing where I'm able to fall asleep early. You are not. So I also wake up early. So like having something impacting my already pretty good sleep schedule is not good for my brain. Like it just adds too much melatonin to my life. So that could also be like, you might not be getting the hangovers because you're not getting enough melatonin maybe. Yeah, who knows? I'm so jealous of your sleep schedule, but oh well. I genuinely wish I could pack it up into a little pill and hand it out to my friends who can't sleep because like so many people are like, I cannot get to sleep on time and I have trouble waking up or like, and I'm just like, okay, like I don't have the best sleep in the world, but if I could just like give my friends the ability to pick the time they go to bed and be able to wake up at the same time every day, I would. Sleep problems suck. Yep. The most. Yep, they do. So melatonin is actually seeming promising. I, I've tried it mm-hmm. before, but not at this like routine of taking it. So I'm taking 10 milligrams an hour and a half before bed and then 10 milligrams at bedtime. Oh, nice. Okay. Interesting. Which before I'd almost always just taken it at bedtime. I've tried a variety of doses, but now I'm taking it a bit before. And that's definitely like helps with two things. It helps me fall asleep, but also like it helps me feel tired. So even if I take it and then keep doing stuff, like I start feeling tired naturally and that pushes me to go to bed, which is an actual thing I can act on. Now, still has the, I don't notice I'm hungry problem, but <laughs> but it's yeah. another advantage towards getting it at least sometimes. Yeah, it's, I find that so intriguing because like, that's basically what happens to me, except it just happens, the sun sets and I start to get the sleep. Like, it's like my melatonin is on hyperdrive. So I wonder, like this, this sounds like a good way to take melatonin supplements. Like, teach your body that you are getting tired at a time. But yeah, if if you don't notice that you're tired, that's probably not great. <laughs> I don't know what to do about that one, though. <laughs> yeah, initial results are when I remember to take it, which isn't always, uh, it's been working pretty well. And I need to figure out how to get myself to take it more consistently. Because like, I've even had an alarm set on my phone for that hour and a half before bedtime time that like I have to like turn off the alarm on the phone. Mm-hmm. And it, if it is convenient to take the melatonin, I will. But like, if I'm like <laughs> in the middle of a TV show or something, like I need to be able to make myself get up and go do it. And I have I've been struggling with that. Or especially like if the water bottle's empty, that makes it really hard to then take the pill. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, I was going to suggest: Can you bring the melatonin or like divide the melatonin in half and like keep the ones you need to take? where you spend your evenings like is that an option yeah so right now it's by my bedside okay which is often where i'm relaxing towards the end of the day but not always um so maybe having it in more places would be useful that's something i will consider trying yeah so the reason i ask this is like i used to have to take medication at the same time every single day um, like it, it was a, on a strict schedule and nine times out of 10, I would be on the couch 
So I ended up just stashing it in the coffee table. And, you know, most of the time I had a drink there. And if I didn't, I would force myself to dry swallow it, which I, oh, makes me so, you know what I mean? I would like learn to not do that. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> but so that's one thing that struck me. But another thing that struck me is I've been thinking about, um, you know, the like one is none rule. Mm-hmm. Like I've been trying to get like duplicates of things around the house. Like I bought us two extra pairs of scissors and stash them in random spots where our scissors always end up, you know, so that there's now two in the kitchen. So when I take one out to open a package, I still have one in the drawer that I can use later to open up food, <laughs> like stuff like that. So I'm wondering yeah. if that would work for you. Yeah, that's definitely a good idea. I'm so torn on that approach in general, because what usually ends up happening is they start all spread out where they need to be. And then eventually you realize that all scissors have migrated to the same spot. And you're like, there's five sets of scissors here. Yeah. Why do I do this to myself? <laughs> yeah, um, that is something I haven't yet had to reckon with. But uh, the addition of having one other person in a house definitely makes that harder because they migrate um they migrate places you didn't think scissors needed to be used. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're just like, why are there scissors in the bathroom? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Cohabitation results in all kinds of interesting things being placed in interesting places. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Especially when it's like, I don't know how to put this, but like, okay, I live with a dude who also has ADHD. So he's like, I used the scissors yesterday somewhere. And I'm like, okay, great. That doesn't help me right now. <laughs> that, yeah, of course, that's also my internal monologue. I used the scissors yesterday somewhere. Yeah. I try, I have, let me think, I have a set of shears for fabric and two pairs of scissors in my office. So I should always be able to find them while I'm working. It's when I get down to the kitchen that I'm like, uh, did I use the kitchen shears yesterday or did they migrate to the garage? That one is my pet peeve. They're kitchen shears for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, our kitchen shears live in the kitchen. They hang off a little magnet on the fridge, which is actually great. That's smart. Keep them in sight. Uh, yeah. So thanks so much, Skylar, Gray, and Wutzy for that feedback. But that wasn't the only feedback we got. Yeah. So um, we got some feedback like super quick after our podcast came out today. So peek behind the curtain. We record on the same day that we release episodes because it just makes sense for us as like full-time job workers to limit the number of days that a podcast like takes over our lives. Um, and so one of our listeners listened to our episode released today and sent us an email like not even an hour afterward, I think. Yeah. So they sent a, they sent us some, some follow-up about the unfinished fiction that we talked about last, uh, last time. And, um, said basically they are really struggling with this because um they're they're reading a piece of fan fiction called the poor wayfaring stranger uh, that was started in 2017 and the last time it was updated was last july um they're still hopeful it'll be finished because this has happened before where the author has kind of like disappeared for a little bit and had like long stints of not writing um and they just like they desperately want to know how it ends and i feel that so hard um and they also wanted to comment on the stereotypes surrounding fan fiction, what it's about, who writes it and who reads it. Um, because something that I brought up last time when I was talking about the Pokemon fan fiction was like, it's not as weird as it sounds. Um, which I feel like I have to say every time I talk about fan fiction, because 
like my experience at least of the stereotype around fiction and i'm sure izzy that you've either heard this one or you've got a similar one is that fan fiction is typically erotica written by women for women and the fact of the matter is is that is not true like at all yeah um that's definitely my experience of the stereotype and reality is is pretty far from that 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 there is some of the erotica and that that's probably what is most well known or certainly what gets the most attention it's the yeah. loudest of fanfic but most fanfic is just people having fun in existing settings and existing characters how's a good creative exercise like yeah. working in a world that you already know well, you already know the characters, you don't have to come up with your own original setting, your own original characters, you can just focus on learning how to use plot, which I think is really important because like, typical writing advice is like, take something you're working on now and try to implement this one little piece of like plotting advice. And it's like, okay, yeah, I also have to be creative with the characters. I also have to be creative with the setting. Like, can't I just work on one tiny part of this? Like, when you're doing other crafts or um, art, you are able to kind of separate out pieces of the, like, of the art. So, say you're an oil painter. You can spend days just working on the, like, the brush strokes you don't have to worry about what color you're using. You could just use black as long as you're working on how brush strokes come off of your brush or off your, or like your, your paint knife, palette knife. What's it called? Palette knife. I think. Anyway, I think so. Yeah. So it's like fan fiction is kind of that for writing fiction. You can take out all of the hard parts of like, I mean, it's all hard. Let me, let me back up. It's all hard. Like you can take out creating characters and taking and creating worlds and just focus on, is this a good story? Like, and I think that's really important. And Absolutely. Like, and like another really huge thing that I think fan fiction is really useful for practicing is developing an understanding of how character voice works. Something I notice so often in less good, let's say, novels are characters who either all sound the same or are so differentiated as to be caricatures. And getting that line where a character sounds like that character, but without going over the top, is so tricky. And it's a lot easier to ask yourself, did you hit that line when you can compare what you've written to how the character actually sounds in other media, it gives yeah. you that baseline to understand, like, why does this character sound like this character? And, yes. and oh, I was going to say, like, one thing that distinguishes good fan fiction from, like, not great fan fiction is if the characters actually sound like themselves. Yeah. Like, like, what was I reading? It was like, um... Oh, there's a term for it, but it was like alternate universe where the Game of Thrones people are in um, modern day New York. And I was like, none of these characters sound like themselves. They're all just like the author's friends. Mm. You know, I was mm -hmm. like, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just like, no, John Jon Snow would not be like doing this in a coffee shop. <laughs> anyway, that was like a really weird really weird example but um yeah so like fan fiction is not all 
romance and erotica, like uh, Poor Wayfaring Stranger, as our listener mentioned, is about the meaning of humanity. It like focuses on a cyborg in, let me make sure I'm reading this right, Final Fantasy oh, XV. Is that 15? Yeah. So it focuses on a character in Final Fantasy 15 who, um, let's see, canonically a clone and in the fanfic she's also fan fiction he's also a cyborg brought up in horrible conditions and it's like his journey through trying to figure out if he's human and that's like that's really powerful you can't you can do that in like real fiction but like exploring it through a character people already know is like just as important you know absolutely and like comparing original fiction to fan fiction it's like a lot of people really want to privilege um, original fiction over fan fiction, but like sometimes it's just fun to go honestly, yeah, <laughs> revisit a character who the author maybe didn't do much with, or like just to see these characters in new situations or used in different ways. Yeah, yeah, especially like what was it? Um, I think our friend shared with us. Yes. Okay. It was a Tamora, Tamora Pierce character. Um, it's Kel from the uh, Protector of the Small series. That series ends with her just like, it like doesn't end satisfactorily. You know, it like ends with her being in like being in a war and just like being there. Like that's how it ends. And it's like, you want to know that that character had a good life, like moving forward and yeah, you might get snapshots of that character in future writing by that author, but like being able to think, okay, my favorite character, what would they do after the end of the story? Like, what's the first thing that would happen? And thinking that through, that's like really fun. It's like, it's a different kind of creativity. You have to try and predict the actions of someone you didn't make up. You have to predict actions of someone who is not you. And like, you don't get to do that very often, you know? Yeah, I've just started reading... The Zen of Writing by Ray Bradbury. And really early in the book, one of the things he recommends is when writing to like have a character and figure out what they want and then just let the character do what they're going to do to get it. And it's like fan fiction skips the first two steps of that. And let's just start with a character who wants something. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And um, this kind of like... This kind of plays into the, we talked about how playing D&D is a different type of creativity as well, because you're, you're interacting with other characters who are not you again, like you can't decide what, what each character wants. Someone else is doing that. So this makes me think of like, our um, DM will say, okay, what is one thing your character wants? Who's someone your character hates? Who's someone your character likes? Like, give me a couple of things. And like that baseline and then you interacting with other people with these character traits in mind, like it sparks so much creativity to be constrained almost by like, like what's a good example? Like, uh, <sighs> I can't think of a good example. <laughs> um, I mean, anyway, I'm playing just... a game um, with a couple of friends here where we are 
students at a magic school who have found our way through a portal in time from the 1980s to 2009 and have been exploring a mall. And it's like, there's so many situations that my character specifically wouldn't end up in that this other character we're with, who's um, more or less like a big jock, ends up dragging us into like we had this whole big thing happen in a gym my character would have never gone in a gym yeah oh my god i love that you are doing this and i want to hear 700 more things about it um is it is it a role-playing game like it's yeah like yeah we're using kids on brooms which is a powered by the apocalypse game which i highly recommend it's also got another version kids on bikes which is more like Stranger Things, the role-playing game, only more general than that. Like, Stranger Things could be played in it, but it doesn't have to be Stranger Things. Anyway. um. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Cool. That sounds awesome. But yeah, so like this, this kind of like, this kind of like, um, the using the bounds of existing fiction to help like steer your creativity is not only like a good way to like do things that you wouldn't do or like think in ways you wouldn't normally think if you were coming up with your own character. And then like also gives you the freedom to explore plot elements that you probably wouldn't if you were just learning how to write and had to come up with like a whole world on your own. Like, I think it's, I think fan fiction gets like a really bad rap. And um, to our listener who is worried that this will never be finished um, as a writer of fan fiction who has not updated their most popular one in like i want to say a year and a half maybe keep that hope alive because i do want to finish this project i'm just not working on it right now um i am not the writer of poor wayfaring stranger um but if they're anything like me they're probably working on something else and can't keep two fiction stories in their brain (laughs) so keep that hope alive maybe it'll get finished soon i'm crossing my fingers for you (laughs) yeah and my gut says that 2017 to 2021 is not overly long for a fan fiction timeline either. No, I don't think it is either. Um, I'm trying to think like the one I talked about last time was like, it's been like eight years. It's been a long time, eight or nine years. Ooh, don't think too hard on that, Maddie. (laughs) So speaking of projects, so my fan fiction one is off to the side, but let's talk about ones we're actually working on. Izzy, your typewriter came. It did. I've been having so much fun with it. It makes such good noise. Let's let's see how it comes through over over the microphone. Oh, it's so clicky. And I've managed to jam it. I am unfortunately <laughs> sitting off to the side of it, which makes it much harder to operate, but <laughs> yeah. I will. It made delightfully clacky noises while it wasn't jammed so but i'm really jealous <laughs> it's and the bell is so much fun oh my god i love that <laughs> You, you can know, feel the progress you're making on whatever you're working on. Yes. Um, slight divergence into I'm a 90s baby. Um, that reminded me of Tarzan where they're doing the song. 
I'm sure people know what I'm talking about. I don't know the name of it. <laughs> I don't know the name of the song either. I know exactly which one you mean. Tarzan yeah. has a really good soundtrack. Yes, it does. Oh like, okay. thank you, Phil Collins. Yes. He made the best Disney soundtracks. Like, and also non-Disney soundtracks. I'm trying to think. Was Phil Collins also like Wild Thornberries? I feel like no. Oh, good question. I haven't thought about Wild Thornberries in a really long time. Izzy, I am still a little bit bitter about it. I wanted to dance to the father-daughter dance that was played in the Wild Thornberries movie with my dad at my wedding, and he didn't want to. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) I'm still bitter about it. It doesn't matter. Um, We ended up doing like a joint father-daughter, mother-son dance. It was really cute. So everything's fine. (laughs) That's good. But yeah, I've had the typewriter, I think, a week and a half now, and I have been using it to write letters and some poetry, which has been fun. I've actually been writing a bunch of poetry recently. Okay, tell me more about poetry. Tell me more. I did not know you wrote poetry. Oh, I I have on and off written poetry for a long time. But um, something I've sort of recently decided is that I should Mm -hmm. share it more. Like, ooh, there's been this mental block for me around sharing poetry and around like how good quote unquote poetry needs to be to be shared. And what I've sort of realized is that there's this, like in photography, you have amateur photographers who share amateur work all the time. And that is a good thing. But in poetry, it's like, I feel like however it happened, I internalized that like, either you get poetry like good enough to get published or you just kind of don't share it. Right. Like I didn't find that sort of amateur space for poetry in, at least in what I've been exposed to. I agree with you on that. It wasn't until recently. And I think this is probably why you haven't experienced it. I have encountered multiple amateur um, poets on Instagram sharing their poems as photos like either they will post like a really aesthetic photo and then their poem will be the the caption or they will just like commit to the to like having a color background and their poem on it in white or black you know in just font and then just post that without comment or with the title of the poem as the caption so it's becoming more common but you're right that like generally poems are not shared like until they're good enough in heavy air quotes yeah and it's like even defining like what makes a good poem i think Mm -hmm. i've realized is a little bit bs and very like there's a very particular thing you think of at least or at least that i think of when i think of what kind of poetry is good enough to get published and it's very let's say difficult it's it's the very it's the poetry that takes significant literary liberties in its execution to create something that's really intricate but perhaps difficult to understand that i very much think of when comparing my poetry against but like poetry doesn't have to be unapproachable and yeah. being approachable in poetry i think is a good thing <laughs> I'm going to agree with you on that one because I could not, one of the poets I think of when you talk about unapproachable poetry, despite him being one of my favorite poets is E.E. Cummings because it's 
wild typography and weird usage of punctuation and other such things. And it makes it hard to understand the poem. Like he writes beautiful poetry, wrote beautiful. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's dead. Anyway, he wrote beautiful poetry, but like it took work to read it when we like Mm -hmm. talked about him in school. And it's like, it doesn't take work to read popular fiction. Why can't we have popular poetry? Absolutely. Anyways, I've just realized that I have complicated internalized feelings about sharing poetry and I'm making a point of doing it more. And so so fun. One of the ways I'm doing that is in a pen pal group that I'm in, I'm going to make a real point of including little poems with my letters. It feels like the kind of thing that benefits well from the pace of snail mail. I agree with that. I feel like poems and little letters go together. And in fact, sent a poem to a pen pal the last time I sent a pen pal letter. <laughs> like, I think we're on the same page with this again. Okay, it was not my poem. I didn't write one. But I think that's wonderful. Are you going to keep copies of the poems that you send out? Or is this like an ephemeral thing? And Yes and yes. Okay. So my process for poetry is usually starts in my journal where just like whatever ideas or fragments or like, oh, that's an interesting sounding thing. I just write them down. Like just like right in line with my daily rapid logging here is like a page that I'm holding up to show Maddie, which I've realized now that the people listening can't see, but has just a little segment of poetry above the daily entry for that day, just because I thought of it. And that's gorgeous. (laughs) one of the things I've been really enjoying about the typewriter Mm -hmm. is that you get one copy out of it. And Mm -hmm. poetry for me is so much a process of first you write it and then you revise it. Mm -hmm. And so what I've been sending is like the latest revision, but the poem itself, like I still have all the other revisions I've done and I still have all of the like thought behind it. And so if I send it again or if I write it again, it'll probably be revised further. It'll probably have changes. But but the exact one I send, I mean, I've been taking pictures of them. So I, I do have the exact verbiage I send. But like, they're also kind of ephemeral because that exact version of the poem will almost certainly never be written out again. I really love that. It's, there's something about the like, the way that the poem evolves, the way you write poetry, the way it evolves over time is so beautiful because we don't do that with, like, we don't publish our drafts of anything else. You know, we don't send our drafts out into the world and then 10 days later come back and be like, eh, I want to publish the next version. Like, I love, I love everything about that. I'm so excited. So I've been having fun with poetry on the typewriter. It's been a really good way to do it. And it's a very satisfying way to write it. It's very, I'm trying to think how to explain the difference between writing with a pen versus typewriting versus like editing it on a computer. And handwriting is very direct, but also feels very like, temporary 
Whereas there's this like middle ground of permanence that the typewriter has where like when writing, I feel like the way I correct mistakes is different than the way I correct mistakes on a typewriter or um, just it's, it's a perfect stream of consciousness machine. Yeah. You can't, you can't go back Mm -hmm. or you can, Mm -hmm. but the ink's still there on the page and, like you can yeah. certainly do things like use whiteout and type out over that or whatever, but mm-hmm. it's a pain. And unless you're trying to produce a finished, a finished draft or a finished document on the typewriter, you probably shouldn't. Yeah, which that makes sense. Which I have done a couple finished drafts on the typewriter, especially the poetry, because it's short enough that you can type it out without error. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And I've been doing those just on little A6 sheets, which have been honestly really cute. Just to have a little typewritten poem on a tiny sheet of paper. Oh my god, I want one. <laughs> I might be able to arrange this. <laughs> okay, maybe. Uh, no pressure, but if you feel like sending one, I would like one. Noted. I I will keep that in mind. I'm also like looking at the spot on my wall where I'd likely put it. <laughs> Um, I hang up like all the postcards I get and all the like holiday cards and stuff. And I feel like a poem get- deserves a spot. Um, I recently pulled some of the holiday cards down so that I can put up a cork board and then use pins because they were falling off the wall. But like, <laughs> I love cork boards. I love cork boards too. So I'm looking at the spot where I would put a poem if you sent one to me. If you feel like it, that is not meant to be pressure. I really don't like pressuring people, especially when it comes to stuff like poetry, because I firmly believe like poetry in a way is like really emotional. It is. It's like, uh, I think a better word is visceral. Like it feels like trying to express really complex topics or even like really simple topics in just like a small set of words makes poems like hit harder is how I would put it. Yeah, like sense? poems, like I don't think a poem has to be like really emotional to be a good poem, but a lot of good poems are. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work to make somebody feel something with very little language used artfully. Yeah, I agree. And this is kind of like, what am I trying to say? It's kind of like, why say it in a paragraph if you can say it in a poem sometimes? Like, if you can express a deep thought like that in such a small space, it's almost like more concentrated. Like, it it stays with you in a way sometimes that like long prose does not. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. All of this is subjective. Like, you know, poems stick with people for certain reasons and fiction or nonfiction sticks with people for other reasons. So I'm really excited that you're doing this like ephemeral, but not poetry. It feels like its own kind of thing than just, just poetry. It feels almost like a transformational project and I love it. Absolutely. And like having people in mind and having like specific correspondences I know I want to stick them into also encourages me to always be like, 
having these ideas and developing them so that when it comes time to write the next letter, like there's a poem there that I can, that I can, you know, neaten up and polish and type and send off. That's great. That's wonderful. I, yeah, I'm so intrigued. I'm so excited about this. (laughs) Like I have dabbled in poetry just because I feel like every, I feel like every, let me not make that I feel like a lot of people dabble in poetry as like nerdy teenagers. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know the type I'm talking about. It was um, me. <laughs> yeah, it was me as well. I found in like one of my memory boxes, like one of my poem diaries. And I was like, oh, good Lord. No, <laughs> I refused to open that because it was going to be horrific. Um, but like, I've never... I've never pursued it in a way to share it. And I think that this is a wonderful project. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I don't know how widely I'll share it because it's amateur poetry. I do it because I enjoy writing it. And some of it's going to be bad. It's all bad when I first write it, but then through editing, some of it becomes less bad. Yeah, but that's true of everything. So absolutely. (laughs) The the first draft of anything, absolutely anything will suck. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, something has gone wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, have you, are you sure you haven't play, plagiarized someone's final draft? Like, yeah. let's, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. So that's really cool. And it, it kind of reminds me, um, you were talking about how writing poetry with like a pen or, or a typewriter feels different from like writing it on a computer where you can like backtrack and stuff. And I wonder if you've ever tried, have you ever tried to write a poem out loud like so i usually don't okay i'm like i feel self-conscious about talking to myself even though i kind of end up doing it a lot so like doing it intentionally is kind of something i struggle with so like something especially when i'm like writing for speaking like if i'm giving a talk on something and Mm -hmm. like i'll have to specifically make myself read it out loud which, of course, you have to do if you're developing a speech. You need to know how it actually sounds. You, your brain does not get caught up by tongue twisters. Your tongue does. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> but developing it out loud is an interesting idea. I often, like, sub-vocalize it or, like, mouth along to it to get a feel for the rhythm in my body. Mm-hmm. But, like, not ever out loud. The reason I ask is, like... Well, I also get self-conscious about talking to myself. Um, But like something about like not having to manipulate a tool other than your tongue. Is your tongue a tool? I don't know. To come up with the words. I wonder if that like makes it flow easier. But I mean, it involves getting past the mental block of I'm talking to myself and we generally look at people who talk to themselves as a little bit odd. So yeah, <laughs> it's hard to do. Of course, as someone who talks to herself, I am a little bit odd. So what can we do? Yeah, we discussed this last time. We like being weird. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, developing poems out loud, something certainly for me to try. If you do try it, I would be interested to know how it goes because I will certainly let you know. All right. But Maddie, what have you been working on? Oh, it's like, kismet related because (laughs) I've been talking to myself out loud. (laughs) 
Uh, this is why it came to me because, okay, so one of our friends, Jake, was talking about how he doesn't like to journal. This was like a long time ago. I think it was like a couple months ago. He doesn't like to journal because like journaling with a pen is so hard. And I don't know what sparked this, but no, that's a lie. I do remember what sparked this. I was like going, I'm started, I've started going for walks in the morning, um, just by myself, not with the dogs, just me for a way to integrate, like moving more into my daily life and like walking the dogs. I love my dogs, but they're a chore. They want to stop. They want to sniff things. They want to lunge after a squirrel. It does not make walking the most fun. Like, yes, I can train that out of them, but I haven't yet. And it's not fun while it's happening. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I've been wanting to go on more walks alone and I've been doing that. And the other day I, I was reading a book and it was talking about really thinking about what you want out of life. And are you sure you know what you want? And I was thinking about that on my walk and I was just like walking along and I was like, you know what? Sometimes I've like vocalized thoughts easier than I like think them. You know, it's like um, the Make Do podcast calls this test talking. Like you don't know what you feel about a subject until you start talking about it. So Mm -hmm. I was like, all right, I'm all alone. There is no one around. I'm just going to put my AirPods in. And instead of listening to a audiobook or a podcast or something, I'm going to turn on voice memos and I'm just going to talk to myself like, like I'm talking to someone else. Like I was just going to try to verbalize the things that was the things that were going through my head. And I did that. And it was like really interesting because I verbalized a lot of things that had just been like stewing in the back, back of my mind. And I had never like written down because writing them down made them real in a way mm-hmm. that talking them out loud did not, even though I recorded it. That makes sense. Like a sort of obvious parallel to me is therapy and the sort of process of talking things out there. And that sounds, from my experience with therapy, I can certainly see how that kind of environment would feel more exploratory, perhaps. Yeah, it's like voicing it to the universe doesn't mean it's permanent because you're literally just saying it to the empty air. Um, For my own self, because I was exploring like a specific question I'd been mulling on, I did record it because I wanted to be able to say like, I wanted to, I forget what I eat for breakfast. I didn't want to forget my own self saying like, I, like, I really want to do X, you know, I didn't want to forget Mm -hmm. that. So I recorded it. I did not, like, I've not listened to it yet. It's been a couple days. I still haven't listened back. And I didn't like take notes when I got home. I just like voiced it and like walked away from it. And that was great. Um, and it's something that I want to do more of. Um, I think like, if not, every day when I'm doing my walks because like today I did my walk and it was like noon and there were four other people walking around and I was like even if I look like I'm on a phone call I'm not doing this yeah (laughs) going back to that self-consciousness about speaking out loud thing (laughs) exactly so instead I listened to a podcast today like if I don't do it every walk having it as like a tool in my toolkit to help me work through some like ideas or thoughts would be really helpful so I thought I would share that with people like, 
if you can get past the mental block of talking to yourself, it like works in the same way that, yeah, like therapy or like talking to a friend does or whatever. And especially, I especially like it because where I walk in my neighborhood and this kind of like transitions into the other thing I've been doing, we have like a nature path in our, in our neighborhood that it, it's a paved path, but it cuts past the three drainage ponds that are there to like capture water from the neighborhood that, you know, used to be a woodland, but they put mm-hmm. a bunch of, but you know, a bunch of houses. As they do. Exactly. They're doing it all around us. Um, so there are a bunch more ponds that are being built and, you know, water retention ponds or whatever. Um, anyway, so the, th- the other thing I've been doing is I've been bringing my gardening snips down with me to these ponds because they're not maintained woodlands. They're just like, the trees mm-hmm. the developer decided to leave. You know? Uh, like, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And it's like, so there's like invasive species like kudzu. And um, I forget the name of them, but there's like a type of tree that gets planted or used to get planted and is now illegal in like most states that when it cross pollinates with some local trees makes really thorny bushes. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. It's not fun. I found like one of those cross pollinated ones and I was like, okay, got to get that out of here or it's going to cross pollinate again. And this entire mm-hmm. place is going to be thorns. So I've been like doing the stream of consciousness, consciousness voice memos while I've been going down to these ponds and I've like been, you know, cutting out some kudzu vines or like taking down dead branches off of trees. And it's been really fulfilling. That sounds really nice. Um, it's really nice. And it's like, if I'm talking to myself or I'm listening to a podcast, it's like meditative to go in and be like, okay, here's some thorny bushes that are encroaching on the walking path and make it hard for your dogs to like walk. Mm-hmm. Like, keep nature, you know, keep nature where you can. But if this is actually like harming people, you know, get rid of it, whatever. So it's been really interesting. And I created a project in my journal to like, write down things like, oh, I spotted that tree. I'm going to need to bring my, my like handsaw next time and make sure that that tree does not create a hedge of thorny, terrible smelling bushes, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, it's been fun. And I've also got a comment on here about the, the dang ducks. And I feel like we need to get into that. <laughs> we do. But before you do, I just wanted to add that Something I've been doing, not talking to myself while walking, but just walking in silence, not having a podcast or music or anything on has also been a really useful experience for me that for a long time, anytime I would go for a walk, the headphones would go in. And there's really something to be said for just walking by yourself in silence. And those moments where it is just you and yourself and no one else's voice, no one else's thoughts, just your own through whatever you're doing, are so rare now. Yes, they are. And I do this sometimes too. Um, Whether it's on a walk or like I'm going 15 minutes away in a car and I know that route by heart, I will just not listen to something on the way there and let my brain just filter thoughts. Mm -hmm. It's so nice. We don't get that very often. Like who drives around in silence in their car? Like nobody. Everybody listens to the radio. Or... They're, they're MP3 players. That That's even more dated. Oh, my gosh. What am I trying to say? <laughs> their music. They listen to their music somehow. <laughs> Indeed. But ducks. But ducks. Okay. Y'all. There's not much I get, like, riled about. 
But when it comes to like invasive species and protecting wildlife and things like that, I get riled real fast. Like (laughs) I go from zero to 60 angry and someone introduced to the three ponds in our neighborhood that are like, they were made by humans, but they were also populated by the local extension with local fish, local turtles, like local birds come and hang out. Someone introduced to these ponds, invasive in South Carolina, Muscovy ducks. They, (laughs) they are a farm duck raised for meat if you raise them, because they are big birds and they are ruining the local wildlife. Oh no. It's like, I don't know much about Muscovy ducks as an invasive species. Like I'm up from New York and we mostly have mallards. Yeah. So we have mallards down here too. There is a mated pair of mallards that comes back every year It's adorable. They have little babies and then they fly off and then they come back next year and they have more little babies. It's adorable. I love ducklings. I touched a duckling once. Oh my God. They're so fluffy. I was working an internship for um, some company while I was in college and there was a park next to my apartment with a big um, man-made pond and because it was like spring, summer... The ducklings were all there, and I, I moved in. My goal all summer was, like, touch a duckling. I, I just wanted to. And yes. finally, one of them let me, and it was the best day ever. Oh, my gosh. See, okay, that is wonderful. That is connecting with nature. These ducks, like, whether or not you think raising animals for meat is a good thing, these ducks no longer know how to live in the wild, right? They are not wild animals anymore. They have been fully converted to rely on humans. That's how far away they are from their like wild friends. And because we're in South Carolina and the weather is so mild, they don't naturally die in the winter. <laughs> like They can survive. And it's like, I don't blame the ducks for this. I blame the person who introduced them because it happened two years ago. They brought in like six ducks And now there are 20 ducks. Wow. See, there are Muscovy ducks here in Austin, but like Muscovy ducks are native to Texas. Yeah. So I I hadn't really thought much about them. Yeah. They're not in South Carolina. Like they, they've never gotten this far, right? I, I, I'm just guessing that they're Muscovy ducks too. I haven't gotten close enough to one because they're, they're gigantic and they freak me out a little bit. They are. They're, um, (laughs) They're kind of ugly. <laughs> Muscovy ducks. <laughs> yes. The the dude ducks have the weirdest faces. I don't like, you know how male ducks are usually more like colorful than their female counterparts? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't get why they evolved to look like this because what duck looks at that face and thinks, yeah, I'd hit that. Like, I just, like, <laughs> I just don't know. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. I'm getting into like animal sexuality is fine. The reason I'm so mad about this is because before the, these ducks were introduced, it was like our pond supported a couple geese that flew down from like New York and a couple herons and a couple mallards. And that was it. Also, at one point, uh, a kingfisher, which was cool. I love kingfishers. They're so pretty, right? Anyway, now these ducks are here. There's 20 ducks. They 
poop in the water, which causes algae blooms, mm-hmm. which causes all of the like horrible smell. Like, and it's just like, they don't even take care of the ducks that they introduce to the pond. They feed them white bread. Oh no. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, like if you wanted to farm ducks, like if you wanted to do that on HOA property, I'm, I'm like, all right, fine. Like, I'm not going to yell at you for farming ducks on technically community owned property in the neighborhood. The HOA could do that if they wanted to, but I won't because it's there for us to use. Yeah, like so the problem here isn't raising animals, although if it's for me, I certainly have my own objections to that. But yep, mm. they're not raising them. <laughs> they're not. They like feed them white bread. And then like there was like a whole thing where they're like, some of the ducklings got eaten by a local snapping turtle. We have to kill all the snapping turtles. And it's like the snapping turtle was here first. Ooh. Like, yeah, I love snapping is, turtles too. Those are so cool. We have the ones like the size of like big dinner plates. They're awesome, but of course they're going to eat baby ducklings because that's their that's their that's their whole natural purpose. Yeah. Like and it's like then they like took the ducks to the vet and they're like they're sick and I'm like maybe because you keep feeding them white bread. <laughs> oh goodness. This This was a much deeper rabbit hole than I anticipated. I am so sorry. Line. But I get so worked up about it. And like the reason I get so worked up about it is like if you want to bring in like native species to improve the pond, you know, like bring in bring in some filtering fish or bring in some like mussels that grow in fresh water if you want to like do that. Bring in some native plants. But Muscovy ducks? Like I don't understand. Strange choice. And like them to continue like supporting them. Like it's a very odd situation. Yeah, it's like, are you are you raising them or are you not? Like I like I don't get it. Very they're, they're starting to spread from the pond area too because the ponds can't support 20 mm-hmm. ducks. And like there's one that has like permanently set up residence in the front yard of someone on my street. And it's like that duck is going to A get hit by a car. B, get attacked by one of the feral cats, which I could go on about because, like, someone is letting cats breed and then not fixing them and releasing them into the wild in our neighborhood. And I'm like, the whole point is to fix them so this doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah, the feral cats is a can of worms that we will sidestep today. Yeah, let's sidestep that one. So the duck will either get killed by a feral cat or by someone's dog who gets off leash or by the foxes or coyotes that literally live like less than a five minute walk down the road. Like, like I'm talking like you are just inviting predatory species to come into the neighborhood. And then they like get all upset because their animals get attacked by predatory species. And it's like, you are doing this to yourself. <laughs> like, it's, uh, always just such a shame to me that having the history in America of killing predators and then immediately seeing the consequences of doing that, that still to this day, we have that same rhetoric being used. Now, of course, it doesn't surprise me, but it disappoints me. Yeah, it, it makes me furious because of the same reason. It's like, okay, we killed all the wolves in Yellowstone and the deer came in and took over. And it's like, you didn't see that coming. 
Are you serious? Like, <laughs> the, the deer taking over didn't, like, it surprised you? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, I get so riled about this because one of my, like, passion projects is, like, this rege- this regenerative gardening, agriculture, maintenance of the wilds that, like, it's, like, rooted in indigenous traditions, right? Like, we together read Braiding Sweetgrass a couple months ago now. And it's, like, indigenous cultures have been tending the wilds and, like, raising food and helping helping nature thrive for generations. So like, this is one of the things that has always like stuck with me. I want to leave the place better than I found it. And it's like watching someone else make a boneheaded move of introducing ducks that don't belong here. And then wondering why the pond smells terrible. I'm like, one of the things that's (sighs) most frustrating to me about American Mm -hmm. culture is the way that individualism really impacts our attitudes to so many things and the absolute lack of any sort of common sense of responsibility towards land or towards the world we live in is just mind-boggling to me and it's something that is so normalized here that it is unfortunately entirely unsurprising to me that in an HOA structure people would act without care for the land and oh yeah like, I could go on and on about HOAs, too, because it's just, it's, like, it's land ownership taken to, like, the next level, and I just, I hate it. I hate it so much. Like, <sighs> I have I have thoughts and feelings on HOAs and single-family homes and yeah. car-dependent suburbs. I agree with, I'm, I'm pretty sure I agree with all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't does make sense? So. <laughs> like, yeah, like, I, okay, yeah, I live in a single-family home right now, but, like, I also don't see that being my future. Like, this is just, like, where we could live right now. In the United States, something like 80 to 90% of housing is single-family homes. So much of our land is zoned to only allow single-family homes. And so, like, regardless of whether people want to or not, there's almost in a lot of cases, no choice, because that's all we're building, regardless of whether yeah. that's what people want or not. Yeah, it yeah, it's like, okay, all the all the trees being torn down around our house, which upsets me on a whole nother level, because mm-hmm. of the foxes and coyotes I just talked about, where are they going to live now? Like, I know they can survive in cities, but should they have to? You know? Yeah, they should not. Um, yeah, every single house going up is like single family home, or it's like a town home style it's like it's not apartments but buildings it's going to be a suburb or a proto suburb mm-hmm. it's like what's the point of that and like i don't know <laughs> there's maybe a hint that tides are changing on this but we have a long way to go on it yeah we do and yeah i can't believe ducks were a rabbit hole into hoas and regenerative mate or not regenerative gardening <laughs> into hoas and single family homes but they were and it like, it just makes me so sad. Not only just, like, for the local, but it makes me sad for the ducks. Like, yeah. For the ducks themselves. They're not being tended in the way that they're used to. They're mm-hmm. not in their natural environment. Okay. Anyway, I could go on for hours, as he knows. So instead, I'm going to take a deep breath, and I, I'm going to bring us into our outro, because apparently it is my turn, and I just remembered that. <laughs> I was waiting for Izzy to cut me off. It's never going to happen. Okay. It's hard to cut someone off on a recording. Yes, it is. 
especially since I'm so worked up about it. So (laughs) let's just say this. This has been Above the Mess. For more about ducks and regenerative gardening maintenance or whatever, whatever fancies us, you can find us on the internet on Twitter and on Instagram at Above the Mess Pod. You can find us on the internet at AboveTheMess.com, where you will also find our email. Um, Izzy's website is Stardust.fm, and my own is FlexPotential.com. It was lovely talking into the ether with you, Izzy. I hope you have a good day. Bye, everyone. <laughs>